The Rohingya are one of the largest stateless populations in the world today. Over the past several years, Burmese security forces have been enforcing a campaign of ethnic cleansing against Rohingya Muslims in Rakhine State. Over half a million Rohingya have fled to neighboring Bangladesh to escape killings, arson, and other mass atrocities. Here to discuss the crisis, the importance of documentation, and the role of power in constructing narratives is Matt Smith. Matt is co-founder and chief executive officer of Fortify Rights, a human rights organization based in Southeast Asia that supports human rights defenders and investigates human rights violations. Matt is currently a fellow at the Carr Center. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. And you just arrived today from Thailand. I did, yeah. I just arrived from Thailand where, where we're based. So tell us a little bit about your work with Fortify Rights and how you got involved in this type of work. Yeah, so Fortify Rights, we're a human rights organization, so we're working to end and remedy human rights violations. Uh, we're working in Myanmar, Thailand, Malaysia, and Bangladesh, and we've been in operation since about 2013. And the way we go about our work is through three core strategies. So we're doing independent investigations, documenting human rights violations, and producing uh, materials, reports, and, and other types of, of documentation materials, films. The second part of our work is what we refer to as uh, strengthening work. So we're working closely with human rights defenders, providing workshops and trainings, basically trying to use our resources to help our partners succeed. And the third part of our work is uh, what we call engagement, and that's essentially working together with our partners to engage people who are in positions of power to find solutions. So. Uh, we've been at it, uh, as I said, since about 2013, and uh, I've been living in Southeast Asia since about 2005, though, so doing human rights work out there. So give us an example of uh, some research and investigation that you've done that you feel has had an impact. Well, uh, you know, we uh, have been working very closely with the Rohingya community in Myanmar, and in fact, I was working closely with Rohingya before Fortify Rights with, with Human Rights Watch. But at Fortify Rights, we've been documenting the atrocity crimes perpetrated against the Rohingya. So what we've been able to do most recently, we've, we've published a report, I guess it was in 2000, July 2018, there were genocidal attacks taking place against the Rohingya. It started in 2016, occurred again in August uh, 2017. And we were able to respond very quickly. We were on the front lines documenting what was happening. The Myanmar military was burning villages down, uh, committing horrific violations, committing massacres in a number of villages in three townships in this one particular area of Rakhine State, Myanmar, killing men, women, and children, throwing infant babies into fires, committing systematic rape. It was truly horrific. Like nothing we had ever seen, there were just tens of thousands of people coming across the border into Bangladesh seeking safety and security, usually in most cases with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Uh, and we were able to document with a, a high level of accuracy what was happening and where. And about, I guess it was around September 9th, we were able to fly to New York City to participate in a private briefing with the UN Security Council to explain to them the atrocities that were happening as we spoke. Uh, unfortunately, that did not lead to any meaningful action. We subsequently did a more thorough investigation, and what we found was that the Myanmar military had 
actually planned for many months in advance for these attacks to take place. The dominant narrative internationally was that the military was responding to these attacks by a small group of Rohingya militants uh, and that it was a spontaneous attack, uh, what the military called clearance operations. What we found was that they prepared actually for many months. They went through civilian villages and were collecting sharp objects and at the same time they were training non-Rohingya civilians in ways uh, that they subsequently activated. There were civilians who joined the military in committing massacres. So it was quite a horrific situation. So uh, going back to your question about an investigation that we think led to some action, we've been convening Rohingya leaders. So we've been bringing Rohingya leaders together to provide a platform so that they can determine for themselves what they want to focus on. And at that time, what they wanted to focus on was an independent investigation. This is actually in, in, uh, just prior to the, the second wave of attacks. And so then we supported members of the community to go to Geneva, to go to New York, to fan out internationally, to speak with power brokers and people in positions of power about the need for uh, a proper documenting of the facts by a credible international body to hopefully lead to accountability and prevent future attacks. And it worked. The UN Human Rights Council established what's known as the fact-finding mission uh, for Myanmar. And that fact-finding mission just concluded its work. And part of that advocacy actually led to the creation of what's called the Independent International Mechanism for Myanmar, which is a body that's been established to collect evidence and, and preserve evidence for future prosecutions. So the genocide continues as we speak. There are violations happening every day. But we have seen these incremental successes. So there's quite a bit of international awareness actually around the situation facing the Rohingya. I'm wondering what is the popular sentiment within Myanmar among people who are not of uh, Rohingya descent and um, what are ways in which civil society can shape those perceptions? It's a great question. There's been quite a lot of very brutal hatred, really raw discrimination, anti-Rohingya discrimination in Myanmar. The dominant narrative has been that everybody in the country is opposed to the Rohingya. Everybody in the country denies their ethnicity. Uh, everybody in the country does not envision a future where Rohingya are citizens of Myanmar. And, and that's, thankfully, that's not actually the case. There are a lot of glimmers of hope throughout the country. Many of them are members of civil society. Um, and I think, and I, I would argue, a lot of the human rights documentation about what's been going on, what's been actually going on in Rakhine State, has served to change people's views because people are starting to question the Myanmar military's narrative. And the Myanmar military's narrative is that all Rohingya are from Bangladesh, they're interlopers from Bangladesh. But beyond that, the, the state has been trying to convince the masses that the Rohingya pose an existential threat to Buddhism and to their communities. And this is the toxic mix. So A, they don't belong. B, they pose a threat, an existential threat to us. This is how the military has been able to instigate people to go out and actually kill men, women, and children. So Myanmar civil society, it, it is a mix. There are quite a lot of people who have very sensible rights-based very decent views about the ethnic makeup of Myanmar, of their country. And so we've been uh, working in, with many of them and supporting them in their work as best we can, and vice versa. They provide quite a lot of support to our team at Fortify Rights as well. We've heard quite a bit about the role of Facebook and other social media companies 
in providing platforms for spreading hate, misinformation, and so on. And I'm wondering how much of your education and advocacy is also targeted at technology companies to ensure that there is appropriate response to hate speech online? Facebook has, has definitely played what the fact-finding mission re referred to basically as a non-neutral role. And, and we would argue that the platform has been used to um, further mass atrocity crimes. There's been quite a lot of effort to change the way the company deals with this. And, uh, and we've been engaging with the company now for several months, explaining some of you know, our views about what the problems were, trying to essentially pressure the company to do the right thing, to make certain changes. It's a, it's a massive problem. I'll say this, Facebook has, I think, done a, an excellent job at hiring really great people. They've hired an excellent team in Myanmar. Uh, they've hired an excellent team in Bangkok. Unfortunately, that doesn't appear to be enough at this point to change some of the adverse effects that the platform is having in places like Myanmar. There are also other issues within, you know, the company has, for example, a policy on dangerous groups, and uh, they've banned certain dangerous groups from using the platform. Our argument to the company is, is that they don't actually have to reinvent the wheel. There are certain definitions in international law and jurisprudence, for example, at what constitutes an attack on civilians and the like, uh, that the company could rely on in developing its policy. But as of, as of today, it's unclear how they are coming up with their decisions. And if they can't articulate to the public how they're arriving at their decisions in a more in-depth way, invariably people will be skeptical of it, they'll question it, they'll accuse them of being politically biased or you know, moving in one way or the other. So th those are issues, but beyond that, just the, the, the fact that the platform is still being used. I mean, we could, we could pull it up now and, and pull up countless examples of hate speech on the platform. We've faced personal threats, even death threats on, on the platform. There was a pretty serious threat against our team that included some details of people that started to go viral. And this was many months ago. And it actually took us several months to get it taken down. And the only way we were actually able to get it take, ultimately taken down was by having a personal contact at the company's headquarters in the US. Uh, so going through their standard procedures of reporting content proved ineffective and we had to actually go through our networks to find somebody who was in a position of power, who then was of course quite helpful, but civil society organizations in Myanmar or in other countries that are facing this type of issues, won't, it won't be as easy for them to engage networks like that. We're trying to change that, but it's still quite, quite difficult. What kind of support is provided to civil society groups in Myanmar and to groups like yours? Like, do you get funding from the region? Is it from international sources? How do you build your uh, base of support in the region? Well, so we have a number of mostly grant-based donors. Uh, I think we've about 14 foundations support Fortify Rights. But, you know, traditionally the international human rights movement has kept a certain distance from local civil society organizations. And I, I should say too that, you know, the human rights movement, of course, is quite young, right? The purpose in doing that was to demonstrate some level of objectivity. So groups did not want to be perceived as being influenced by actors who are closer to the situation on the ground. And this was highly effective for a number of organizations that, that were able to build up quite a lot of credibility over the years. 
I think one of the unintended consequences of this was that it sent the subtle message that local civil society groups were biased or that you know, members of persecuted communities could not objectively represent themselves, which of course is not, is not what any of us believe. It's certainly also not what members of these international human rights organizations believe. But that's just been the way it's developed over the years, from our perspective at least. And so what we've tried to do at Fortify Rights is sort of flip that on its head and work as close as we can with community-based activists, with members of affected communities, to really fight against this pernicious idea that directly affected communities can't objectively represent themselves or that survivors of genocide can't you know, uh, represent themselves. And we've got a number of projects that we hope are, are contributing to, to changing that dynamic. You know, it's interesting because uh, I think that people who attack human rights will, will say this, but then they might also say that Western organizations cannot represent uh, human rights causes in, in countries other than their own, and they're being hypocritical because they're not reflecting on the biases and atrocities being committed in their own backyard. So I think we, as a sort of an international community, global civil society, have to be aware of all of these challenges and misperceptions, but also ensure that we kind of stay grounded and and work with local groups to advance these rights causes. So it, it is a yeah. complex landscape. And I think increasingly we're seeing attacks on human rights, not just from governments, but also from people within human rights or within academia who yeah. question its legitimacy and effectiveness. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we've, I've actually been engaged in some conversations with a, a close colleague and friend who has been working in human rights for many years. And, and, and he's become quite critical of the human rights movement and and I've, I've heard this elsewhere too, this idea that what human rights groups do is just name and shame. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it's interesting because we don't actually think about it as naming and shaming. We think about our documentation work, our investigative work as establishing the truth. Mm -hmm. And I can't envision a world in which establishing the truth is not absolutely essential. And, and so uh, it is this balancing act of, you know, thinking about how we can do our work better and more effective and uh, while also continuing to do what, what we all believe is absolutely essential. Tell us a bit about your work in Bangladesh, because you don't provide direct services, is that correct? So uh, what is the kind of work that you do in Bangladesh with uh, refugees? Yeah, we've got a couple interesting projects. Apart from doing the documentation work there, we have trained a group of Rohingya refugees in photography. So there was a there was a cohort of refugees who were very interested in in photography, and they've seen international photojournalists come into the refugee camps. They've seen them holding this hardware, you know. They've they've seen them taking photographs, etc. And they were interested. And so our multimedia specialist, Timur Sabhan, uh, and one of our human rights specialists, John Quinley, and a team of other people, we've gone out and trained a group of refugees, uh, given them smartphones, trained them in basic photo composition and, and some of the fundamentals of photography. And then in partnership with Doha Debates, we've connected them with Instagram. I'm not really on Instagram, but I've come to appreciate the platform, particularly in light of the fact that these Rohingya, they're media fellows is what we're calling them. And uh, they have been using the platform to communicate what life is like for the Rohingya in the camps. And this is interesting because most of the reporting coming out of the camps is about death and destruction. And that is, of course, a huge part of the narrative. Genocide is happening, but 
the Rohingya as a people are not just victims or survivors of genocide. There's a whole lot of other things going on in their lives. Uh, and this is an opportunity for refugees themselves to communicate themselves, to sort of take back the narrative, to communicate to the international community. So we're doing that. We've also done a project, essentially a participatory mixed methodology research project where we've gone in and trained a team of Rohingya researchers to conduct a survey of issues that they found were important to their people, whether it was about 149, 150 questions on the survey. And, and the team developed the questions about what had occurred in Myanmar, what their life was like in the camps, and many other issues related to, you know, psychosocial situation, livelihoods, their hopes, their fears, things of that nature. And the team did a tremendous job. We're starting to analyze the data now with them. And one of the reasons we did this project was because we were coming up against people in positions of power, whether they be diplomats or senior officials, uh, who were questioning the ability of the Rohingya community to objectively represent themselves and to conduct credible research. We're hopeful that this project will help demonstrate that members of the Rohingya community not only can produce credible research, but they can produce research that will actually influence things like humanitarian interventions, that will actually influence things like international justice, that will highlight for international prosecutors issues that perhaps they haven't been thinking about. And that's quite an exciting project with the refugee population as well. So there's a misperception in the West that refugees are a burden on the West, but in reality, it's really neighboring countries like Bangladesh or Jordan or other countries in the region of where people are getting displaced who are bearing the burden of people who are migrating. So I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about, you know, how is Bangladesh coping with this influx of, of refugees and what kind of support are they getting, if any, from other countries in the region and from the international community? I think any country would struggle with an influx of more than a million people. And I remember being on the border of Bangladesh, on the, on the banks of the Naf River in early September 2017, and there were just huge numbers of people coming across, men, women, and children. And at that point, the government of Bangladesh could have prevented people from fleeing. I mean, we could see the smoke right across the river where villages were being burned down by the Myanmar military. And the authorities could have made what would have been a horrendous decision. Refugee policy in South and Southeast Asia has not, has not always been in line with international rights and standards. Thankfully, the, what we saw the authorities doing was actually helping refugees find, get to places of safety. They brought in vehicles. They were helping people carry their, their belongings. It was incredibly humane and the authorities welcomed it, what ended up being more than a million refugees. There were, at that time in 2017, I think about 730,000 people fled the attacks in Myanmar. However, the authorities' policies with respect to the Rohingya are a bit concerning now. In the last, just actually this past week, uh, the government announced that they were going to cut all internet service for Rohingya refugees they instructed telecoms companies to prevent Rohingya from obtaining SIM cards. Now for a community that's been ravaged by genocide, that is in many cases separated from family members, there are, you know, there've been, there's been human trafficking to Malaysia and Indonesia and Thailand and, and Rohingya families are, are spread all throughout the region. Uh, and so for the Bangladesh authorities to 
cut their communications is quite a uh, disturbing development. Uh, so that's a problem. There's also a proposal on the table to f transfer Rohingya refugees from the current camps in Cox's Bazar district to a remote island called Basanchar. And this is a flood-prone island. The authorities have been building facilities there that would house refugees. And I haven't spoken to a single refugee in Bangladesh who wants to go to this island. But the authorities have, in the past, figured out ways to either coerce or force people to go back to Myanmar or to otherwise move locations. And so it's not beyond Bangladesh. And in fact, the foreign minister recently said if people did not want to go, they would force them. So what we're looking at now is a situation in which the Rohingya population has survived these horrific violations. And now the authorities in Bangladesh are essentially layering on more human rights violations. And so that's a concern. But there's also been a long history of forced repatriations, people being forced back into Myanmar. It happened in the 70s. It happened in between 1992 and 1994. A quarter of a million Rohingya were effectively forced from Bangladesh back to Myanmar. And so there's a risk that that could happen as well. Uh, we're hopeful that the authorities won't go that route, but it's a big risk. And what is the ICC doing with respect to Myanmar? The ICC's response has been interesting. The chief prosecutor asked the court for jurisdiction to take a closer look at the crime of forced deportation. And her argument was that, so Myanmar is not a state party to the Rome Statute, of course, and Bangladesh is. And so the, the chief prosecutor's argument was uh, that because forced deportation is a crime that involves two states, in this particular case at least, that uh, part of the international crime occurred on the soil of a state party to the Rome Statute, Bangladesh. And through this argument, the court granted jurisdiction. So right now, the stage that it's at, they're about to begin a preliminary investigation into not only forced deportation, but also persecution and other potential crimes that contributed to uh, the forced deportation. And we know that there are senior members of the Myanmar military who are worried about these developments, as well they should be. And our hope is that these types of developments, the work of the chief prosecutor and, and her team at the ICC, and other accountability mechanisms that are now up and moving, our hope is that this will influence the decision-making of the military elite with respect to what their troops are doing, with respect to responding to or preventing or ending abuses that are ongoing. And it remains to be seen uh, if, if that will be the case long term. But one of our chief objectives right now is prevention. We want to prevent the next round of, of mass killings. And there are a number of Rohingya and other people working day in and day out to do that because there are about 495,000 Rohingya still in Rakhine State that are at grave risk. And given how intense this work is, how do you sort of sustain yourself? How do you maintain a sense of optimism and hope? Yeah, that, uh, thank you for that. Uh, our executive director, Amy Smith, and I have been and thinking a lot about self-care, uh, mental health, the ways in which we can take care of ourselves. And, and I think there, there has, I think we've all sort of seen a, a, what's basically a trauma epidemic among human rights defenders. Many of our colleagues are, have been completely traumatized by the work that they've been doing for many years. And I think if we're not healthy, we certainly won't be hopeful, but we also won't be 
effective. Uh, and so we've been trying to figure out ways to do that. We've been working with uh, some therapists who introduced us to EMDR therapy, which was an amazing revelation for me personally, but also most people on our team found it quite helpful as well. And uh, this is eye movement desensitization reprocessing, I think. Um, and I hope that the, the great team of therapists will forgive me if I got that wrong. <laughs> but there are ways that we're learning to under, better understand trauma, to deal with it. And so, yeah, we've been, we've been trying to introduce our team to that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Matt. Thank you so much, Sushma. Appreciate it. Once again, this is Justice Matters. I'm Sushma Raman, the Executive Director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. Learn more about the Carr Center and our work at www.carrcenter.hks.harvard.edu. You can tune into the rest of our episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. Alex Geller produced and edited this episode. Thank you for joining us.